Now, this morning I am really excited to be continuing on in the uh, Book of Luke, the series that we've been working on through this last few weeks. And, and we've been considering uh, specifically how we can have truth in an uncertain world. And I think perhaps the one word that would characterise 2020 thus far is the word uncertain. Because, of course, this year began with conflict between Iran and the United States, which was then followed hot on the heels by the COVID-19 virus, which is, of course, why I'm talking to you this morning by camera instead of face-to-face. And we're not even four months in yet. Who knows what the rest of the year has in store for us? Either way, this uncertainty can leave us feeling quite unsettled and shaken because the things that we hold on to for our security as as our greatest need, all of a sudden these things feel less secure and and less concrete. Our health, our jobs, our finances, even our our loved ones, we start to see that, that these things are not guaranteed to be there for us forever. And more than this, as morbid as, as it may seem, these things, the things that we sometimes think we need, like a fit body, a high-powered career, uh, money, a spouse, children, whatever, these things are all guaranteed to fail us at some point. Our bodies age, our powers wane, our possessions rot, and our loved ones will die. These things, of course, are, are, are all good things, and they're things that probably all of us want in some measure, but in a world that is perishing, they are not what we need. We need a saviour, which is what we're going to be looking at this morning in the book of Luke. Now the passage that we're looking at, Luke 5 verses 17 to 39, is actually split into three seemingly quite separate stories. So we're going to begin by looking at the first of these in Luke 5, 17 to 26. On one of these days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up onto the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why? Do you question in your hearts, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralysed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, and picked up what he had been lying on, and went home, glorifying God and amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying we have seen extraordinary things today so here we read that Jesus was was teaching the people and among those that were listening were the Pharisees 
and the teachers of the law, which is, of course, the first time we see them appear in the commencement of Jesus's ministry. Clearly, they, along with the rest of the crowd, had heard of the commotion that was no doubt surrounding Jesus following the exploits that we read about previously in chapter 4, where we read that he was firstly nearly pushed off a cliff for for declaring himself to be the Messiah at his hometown synagogue uh, in in Nazareth. And and we we read that he delivered people from demons and and that he healed many with, with different types of physical ailment through to preaching throughout all the synagogues in Judea. So we should ask ourselves the question, why were the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law there? What is it that they were looking for? As we considered at the outset this morning, what did they think that they needed from Jesus? And we're going to be looking at this this morning. And we should also ask the same question of the other group of people that are prominent in this passage, the friends of the paralysed man, and of course, the paralysed man himself. What was it that they thought that they needed from Jesus? Well, the answer to this one, I think, is is quite clear from the second half of verse 17 and then, then through into verse 18, where it says this, And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralysed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. The paralysed man's friends felt that his greatest need from Jesus was physical healing. Because this is indeed why they took him and laid him at Jesus' feet. And when you consider the, the great lengths that they went to enable this, it shows that they, they, they felt this, this passionately, that they were desperate to see their friend healed and, and walking again, as per all the stories that they would have heard about Jesus. And maybe uh, they've even witnessed themselves Jesus doing for others. And, and this, is, I think, is very relatable for us. I don't know about you, but, but I am not good when it comes to physical pain or illness. I think the phrase man flu was designed for me. You would just need to ask my wife Natasha if I get the faintest cough or the slightest cold, I am letting everybody know about it. But by the grace of God, thus far in my life, I've yet to be seriously ill. But if I was, I can well imagine the temptation to be all encompassed by it. I imagine this temptation would be very strong because when you feel ill, when you feel sick, or maybe when you feel incapacitated in some way, it affects everything. You can't do all the things that maybe you take for granted. In some ways, it feels as though you're, you're not really yourself when your physical capacity is, is reduced, doesn't it? So to be seriously, or to be facing this for, for an extended period of time, maybe your life where there's, there's no end in sight, I can well understand that people fall into the belief of thinking that their greatest need is to be free from from their illness. Because in the moment, in in the face of suffering, the illness or the disability, whatever it is, it seems to be the biggest, most apparent problem. So let's see verse 20 to see how Jesus responds. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? 
When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Despite this man's clearly apparent problem, the first thing that Jesus offered him was not actually the physical healing that maybe we'd expect. The first thing Jesus offered him was forgiveness. And in doing so, we see a very clear claim from Jesus that he is not merely a man, rather that he is God. Because we read in Psalm 103 verses 10 to 12 this, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. This is amazing, isn't it? It's only God who chooses how our sins can be dealt with. It is only God who can remove our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. Because, of course, it is only against God that our sins are truly committed. When we sin, it is his law that is being transgressed. When we sin, it is his will that is being disobeyed. When we sin, it is his justice, his perfect justice, that we are challenging, which is why it is only God who can forgive sins and why this is a very clear claim to deity that Jesus is making. And it is in the scribes and the Pharisees' response to to this incredible claim that we see their reason for coming to Jesus. You see, they would have come to Jesus, no doubt, knowing the claims that were being made about Jesus, knowing the claim indeed that he was making about himself. That is, that he himself was the Messiah, the Messiah that they, the Pharisees, were waiting for. Yet in claiming to be God, we see that he was not the Messiah that they were hoping for. You see, despite having spent much of their lives studying the scriptures, what we would know as the Old Testament, they failed to realise that the coming Messiah would himself be God. Instead, they created a Messiah that would fit their very own purpose. Because, of course, the Pharisees are are known for their focus on their law, on the the, the fundamental belief that, that, that Jewish law should be applied to all activities, even even the most mundane, in order to sanctify the everyday world. And in believing this, what they did is they created new laws above and beyond the Torah in order to achieve holiness. So, of course, a Messiah that can come and, like God, forgive sins without the completion of these pharisaical rituals posed a huge threat to them. The fact that Jesus may indeed be God was a seemingly secondary matter to them, of less importance. They didn't see their need as being one of forgiveness. What they were seeking from Jesus was an endorsement of their own self-righteousness and their independence from him by the laws that they had created. And as we read here, when he didn't give them his approval, when he didn't endorse them, their response was to accuse him of blasphemy. And of course, as, as we know, it was Jesus' refusal to defer to the religious leaders in this way that ultimately led them to, to plotting, to, to having him handed over to Pilate 
to be crucified. It was, it was this that saw Jesus being put upon the cross in human terms. Now, this leaves us with an, an interesting question, I think, to ask ourselves. When we truly examine our motives, which is a very difficult thing to do, but when we do, what is it that we are coming to Jesus for as our greatest need? Do our inner thoughts and and our actions line up with the belief that as Jesus teaches, the thing we need more than anything is forgiveness of our sins? Or like the Pharisees, do do we come to Jesus only ready to accept him if what he says affirms our own beliefs and our own prejudices? Do we truly realise that our sin has separated us from the Father? No amount of righteous acts will ever earn our way into his presence. Do we believe that? And a good way to test this is ask ourselves, which of these things are we more aware of? Which of these things do we think more about? Is it the incredible kindness of God to forgive us in spite of our incredible guilt? Or are we more aware of the sins and the failings of other people? Or perhaps more subtly, are we so aware of our own sins and failings that we believe that they are greater than God's incredible kindness towards us. Perhaps we believe that he could never forgive us in spite of Jesus' death on the cross. In a sense, this this last one may may make us feel more more humble and, and more holy, but actually, this is just a form of inverted pride. This is unbelief in a different way, because we fall into the trap of believing our salvation is based on our works. Or maybe we're more like the men coming to Jesus for their paralysed friend. Now, their intentions certainly seem to be good. They love their friend. They wanted him to be healed. And of course, Jesus even praises them for their faith. This was a good thing that they were doing. But Jesus' first response was not to heal the man. It was to forgive his sins. Many of us as Christians will be like this. At worst case... This will kind of come about in us treating Jesus like a genie, only calling to him when we need something to improve our health, our wealth or our comfort. Or maybe like these men, our view of Jesus shrinks down to be too small. We come to him as we should, asking him to intervene in our current situation, to heal us, to bring us our heart's desires, whatever it is, we do that. But we maybe forget to see that what he has to offer us is so much greater. Because Jesus is offering us an eternity in paradise, worshipping him. As we read in the book of Romans, chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Our greatest need from Jesus is not a job, or a relationship, or to not get sick. Our greatest need is one of forgiveness, because it is forgiveness bought by the blood of Jesus at the cross that frees us from the wages of sin and death into eternal life with him. And my wife the other day was was teaching our children uh, about how short our lives are compared to how long eternity is and and she drew a picture that just kind of hit home with me uh, as to the importance of this message that I've I've been speaking about which uh, I've recreated and you should be able to see on your screen now 
So what we see here, the little red line at the start of the arrow is your whole life. Now, what this is, is saying, I don't want to say that it's insignificant, but, but actually in the grand scheme of the big blue line, it is pretty small because the big blue line that we see is representing eternity. And as it says by the arrowhead, there are not enough pieces of paper in the world that could show how far this arrow goes. Essentially what this is saying is life is short, but eternity is long, and we must get this into the correct perspective. And the only way to enter that eternity with Jesus and the alternative of spending eternity separated from him is too awful to consider. The only way to enter it is through receiving his grace and his mercy. It is through receiving his forgiveness from the only one that is able to save us. That, Grace Church, is our greatest need. But of course, as I've said, there was, there was nothing wrong in these men bringing their friend to Jesus to be healed. Please, please don't misunderstand me because, of course, after forgiving the man's sins, Jesus then healed him. He said this, it says this, we read this, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the, power of the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. And this is a beautiful story. This man was bedridden. He was unable to walk. And with the help of his friends, he came to Jesus to fix his body. But what Jesus gave him was so much more in giving him the undeserved forgiveness of his sins. We read that the man went home glorifying God. And not only that, but we also read that all the people present were, were filled with awe and they also glorified God. Everything that happened on that day served to bring glory to God. Which as we read it in the high priestly prayer at the start of John 17 was of course Jesus' very mission here on earth. It says this, when Jesus had spoken these words he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father the hour has come, glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And my Father, glorify me in your own presence with your glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is all part of his ultimate plan and purpose. Jesus glorified the Father here on earth through the forgiveness of sins and through offering eternal life and through his death and resurrection. The Father has glorified Jesus. And you may say that the people present gave glory to God because they saw a man healed, which in part I think is correct. But actually, in verse 26, I think it is telling us that they glorified God because they had seen extraordinary things. This is plural, not singular. They were glorifying God for everything that they'd seen on that day. Yes, 
they were glorifying God because they'd seen the man healed, but also they were glorifying God because of Jesus's claim to be God. And of course, for his revelation that our greatest need from him is our forgiveness of sin. Ultimately, they were glorifying God because through Jesus they had tasted and they had seen his incredible grace. Which brings me on to the next section of the, the passage from this morning. So let's turn to Luke 5, 27, 32. We read this. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So here we have Levi, who that we would maybe know as Matthew, as if it was him who, who authored the, the New Testament book uh, of, of the same name, Matthew. Um, so we, we have Levi here uh, being at first read. Um, we see that this is, it feels like a totally separate story to, to what we've just been reading. And, and it kind of feels like Luke is taking a change of direction, bringing, bringing Levi in. But of course, when we, we look closely, we see this isn't the case at all. Because we've just seen that our greatest need from Jesus is one of forgiveness. So the question then that should be hanging in the air is how do we receive this forgiveness? And I think this passage here teaches us two things in response to this. Now the most apparent thing that it teaches us is that we receive this forgiveness completely and utterly by grace. This is a free gift. It's based not on what we've done, but it's based on on who he is. So where do we see this? Well, Firstly, we see this in, in Jesus' very action of calling Levi to be one of his apostles because tax collectors were amongst the, the most reviled people at the time. They were Jews that had chosen to collaborate against their, their own people and, and, and with the, the Roman occupiers to collect taxes from other Jews, from, like I say, from their, their own people. And in doing so... Uh, often the tax collectors would amass significant personal wealth because they would actually charge in excess of what Rome required and, and keep uh, a portion for themselves. So in short, the way that they would have been viewed is, is as greedy, corrupt traitors that had chosen money over their own race, over their own religion, ultimately over their own God. And Jesus was going to choose 12 people to, to be his ambassadors, to, to spread the gospel, to share the good news to the, to the, the ends of the earth. And, and this is who he chose. He chose a tax collector, the lowest of the low. And, and then in the eyes of the Pharisee, he, he compounded this by going to a party that Matthew held, and it was full of, of tax collectors, other tax collectors, and, and other types of sinners as well, which, again, would have been, it would have been shocking, it would have been surprising that this Jesus, who, who as we've seen over the last few weeks, he had great authority and he was indeed claiming to be the Messiah. But he would choose to feast with those that the rest of Jewish society would shun. This, this wouldn't have computed with them. But actually, 
This really shouldn't have come as a surprise to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, because they would have read this in in the book of Exodus, in in chapter 13, in, in verse 17 to 19, it says this, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you, for you have found favour in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Even Moses himself was given a favour, was given favour, sorry, as a result of God's grace. Of course, the same would be true for those that followed. So this is the first thing that we learn from this passage that we receive Jesus by grace and by grace alone it is not based on our merit we cannot boast in it which could which could leave us wondering well does that mean that we're just to accept God's grace and then we're to continue on with our lives in the same way in the same manner that we always had well Levi gives us this answer in his own actions so verse 28 it tells us that he left everything And he followed Jesus. And then after that, it tells us that he introduced Jesus to his friends. This is what we as Christians should be prepared to do. Firstly, to give up all things that would keep us from knowing Jesus. In other words, our sin. And secondly, to tell our friends about him. It's not that these things kind of earn us credit with God. Don't get me wrong. That's that's not the case at all. But... Notice here, Jesus' only words to Matthew were, were, follow me. He didn't tell him, give up everything and tell your friends about me. He just said, follow me. But as we see throughout the Gospels, indeed, we, we see, see the same, uh, I saw the same a couple of weeks ago in the passage that directly precedes this, where the fishermen, uh, Peter, James and John, gave up everything to become fishers of men with Jesus. Clearly, Luke wants us to to know this is the natural response to a life that has been exposed to his grace. We'll want to know him more and we'll want others to know him. This should come naturally. This isn't a false act. This isn't an instruction from Jesus. But God's grace requires a response. Just as a man got up from his mat when Jesus Uh, instructed him to just as Levi gave up everything and followed him we too need to make a decision when we're encountered by God's grace do we choose to accept it and walk in it towards Jesus and away from our sin or like the Pharisees in both of these stories do we look inwards at our attempts to achieve our own righteousness successful or otherwise or maybe do we look outwards spending more time backbiting and criticising others, when really what we should be doing is looking upwards to Jesus, the only saviour who is able to deal with our greatest needs. And as we've seen this morning, our greatest need is forgiveness, and by extension, salvation offered by Jesus as a free gift of incredible grace, received by us with a living faith. So how do we, we go about walking in this grace? Well, I think this is is further amplified in the final story of of this passage. So if we could turn to Luke 5, verses 33 to 39, we read this. 
And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. So in response to to Jesus partying with sinners, the Pharisees start to push him on why his disciples eat and drink and do not follow the patterns of fasting that they deem to be appropriate. And they, they, they get this interesting response from Jesus telling them three short parables. So the first of those parables was, was um, uh, about him being the bridegroom and, and, and then about the wineskins and the, the, the patches of cloth. And this is quite a difficult portion of scripture. So I'm just going to take a moment to, to unpack what Jesus is, is describing. So when Jesus talks first about being a bridegroom and his disciples as, as wedding guests, he, he clearly states that now isn't the time to fast. So in doing so, what Jesus seems to be suggesting is that fasting is a process of of mourning and perhaps even a a process of of desperation. But then he points to a time where his disciples will fast, and that is when he, the bridegroom, is taken away from them. And that time is, of course, right now. But whilst, of course, right now we we have the wonderful gift of the presence of, of God through the Holy Spirit, we are not physically present with Jesus in all his fullness, in the way that, that maybe we would like to be. As Paul writes in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 to 8, he says this, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. This is telling, isn't it? In, in other words, What he's saying is that within all Christians, there's a kind of homesickness within us because we are not with Jesus in all his glory as we we would yearn, as we would like to be. And then as we read, Jesus goes on to tell them in verses 36 to 38 this, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, the new will tear and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. In this analogy, the new patch and the new wine represent the new reality that the kingdom of God has arrived with the arrival of Jesus. And in coming... He died for our sins and he rose from the dead. This is, this is done. It is a finished and completed work. Then after his ascension, Jesus sent his spirit into the world in order to lead us and to guide us. 
to live amongst us as his presence among the people. The kingdom is the reigning power of Christ, which was inaugurated when he came to this earth, enabling people to turn their hearts towards him and to walk in a manner that glorifies him. This is the new wine. And Jesus then goes on to say that the old wineskins can't contain it. So so what does that mean? It it leads us to ask the question, what is the old wineskin that can't contain this new wine? And there are a number of opinions about this, which I've been reading lots about over this this last couple of weeks. But, But given the context where we see the Pharisees grumbling about who Jesus was spending time with, as we've read this morning. Uh, He was with people who they saw as unworthy because of their jobs, because of their social standing, and and at the heart of it because of their their recognition of their own sin. Uh, we, We start to see, because of this, the argument that persuades me the most is that the old wineskin seems to refer to how we continue to walk in our relationship with God. Clearly, the Pharisees felt that it was through the Judaic system of the law. But Jesus, in answering their question on fasting, seems to be pointing to a whole new way of relating to God. Now, fasting was clearly part of the Jewish system of of how to relate to God. And and Jesus says the old wineskin of Judaism cannot contain the new wine. So what does this mean to how we should now relate to God because Jesus says only a couple of verses earlier that the time will come for us to fast again so what he's not saying is we should throw everything away he's not saying no more fasting no more praying for those that are under the new covenant that is not what Jesus is saying here but our fasting our praying the way in which we relate to God should be transformed by the glorious truth that the bridegroom Jesus has come and therefore our relationship with God has changed forever. The yearning and the longing of the old way of relating to God was not based on the incredible, on the glorious truth that the Messiah had come. The mourning over sin was not based on the finished work of Jesus on the cross but now that he has defeated sin and death we are caught up in his relationship with the Father. We are living with the glorious knowledge that Jesus' work on the cross that has paid for our sins, we are living with the knowledge that that is now a historical event. It's something that has already happened. Unlike for the Jews in those days, it's, it's not what they were looking forward to in the future. Uh, and, and on this basis, our, our relationship with the Father is, is new because it is through Jesus and it rests on his finished work and we now get to experience him through the Holy Spirit this is completely different to how the Jews would have related to him before Jesus our relationship with God is not based on an unfulfilled desire to encounter the wine that he is to offer quite the opposite because we have tasted it so wonderfully by his spirit we can now not be satisfied by anything apart from receiving joy from him so we pray we fast We chase after him in order to experience more of what we already know, not out of a desperation for something that we've never seen. This is very, very different. This is out of a desperation for more of him. 
This is an incredible privilege, Grace Church, to live on this side of the cross. We can taste and we can see of the delights that Jesus has to offer for us, knowing that in all eternity there is an abundance of this goodness waiting for us. And it is this that is able to sustain us as we seek to worship him and as we, we, we attempt to battle our sin. We are sustained by this. So Grace Church, this morning, let's be reminded again that our greatest need is one of forgiveness. He is so, so gracious that he often gives us so much more than just forgiveness. He gives us more than salvation. He gives us more than that thing that we desperately need. But it is through his forgiveness, bought by Jesus at the cross, with his own bloodshed, that we are able to enter into the eternal relationship with the Father for which we were created. It is through this forgiveness that we receive the salvation that we so desperately need. Grace Church, this salvation is offered to us as a free gift, and it's a gift of grace. It is, it is not something that by our own measures, our own righteousness or unrighteousness, that we can earn. It's a gift that we must choose, though, to receive. It's a gift that we must choose to respond to. And I would urge anyone watching this this morning that has never responded to grace, uh, the grace of God, then to do so today. Turn now and ask Jesus to enter your heart, to reveal himself to you so that you can know him. Because what is on offer is a relationship with the God who created the heavens and the earth. And through what Jesus has done, we can experience this goodness in his incredible kindness, he gives us a taste of what he has prepared in heaven for those who love him. And he enables us to walk in a manner that brings glory to his name. Praise Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your incredible grace. We thank you for your, your undeserved forgiveness towards us. It is something that we could never earn. It's something that we don't deserve, yet you lavish it upon us and so much more. Help us, Lord, to see this truth. And by your Holy Spirit, won't you help us to walk in the truth that we have been saved by your grace. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.